This episode is brought to you in part by Harvest House Publishers and the new book, The Good Gift of Weakness. Discover how human weakness not only allows God's strength to shine, but it was all by His design. The Good Gift of Weakness is now available wherever books are sold. Welcome to the Grace Enough Podcast. I am your host, Amber Cullum. This week, I sit down with Rebecca McLaughlin. We discuss Christians and the value of intellectual curiosity, engaging secular literature to enrich one's belief in Jesus, sexual ethics in our post-Christian world, and more. Our conversation is packed with pause and take noteworthy moments. Rebecca has authored books such as Confronting Christianity, 10 Questions Every Teen Should Ask and Answer, Secular Creed, and Jesus Through the Eyes of Women. While editing this episode, two podcast friends kept coming to mind who are doing some hard and holy work. So I want to dedicate this episode to them. The first is my friend Melinda Patrick, the host and creator of the Bridge Between Us podcast. And the second is Janelle Wood, the host and creator of Finding Something Real podcast. If you enjoyed today's conversation with Rebecca, after sharing it with a friend, check out those two podcasts and Rebecca's books, all of which are linked in the show notes for today's episode. Good morning, Rebecca, and welcome to the Grace Enough podcast. Good morning. Thank you so much for being here today. Let's jump right in. Um, I love to begin my episodes with hearing a little about people's faith journey. And I know you have a very interesting one. So how did you come to faith in Christ? Just tell us a little bit about that early journey for you. Mm-hmm. It's funny. I often think that I have a very boring story and it's the the kind of boring story that as a mother of three, I want all my kids to have, which is that I, <laughs> I, don't, I don't remember a time when I wasn't following Jesus. Wow. So on the one hand, you could say that's boring. On the other hand, um, it's it's super exciting because it means that I've I've had a long time to to walk with the Lord. Um I grew up in the UK, as many will discern from my dulcet tones. Um <laughs> it's funny, English accents are just basically fetishized in America. It's like everyone <laughs> um, Yes, we do. <laughs> I, I love your accent. I'm like, thanks. It's sort of like saying, um, it's the it's the most non compliment to a Brit because it's not like it's just like saying you're English and I go yes. <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, take it from one who's from Eastern Kentucky and you constantly get criticized <laughs> for the accent and it it, it could be worse I guess is what I'm saying. <laughs> my my husband's from Oklahoma, so we have a nice oh yes nice mix in our family. Um, yeah, so I grew up um, mostly in London. Uh, I I went to very academic, not at all Christian um, schools for sort of what in the UK we call primary and secondary. Here is called uh, elementary, middle, and high school, and then university at, at Cambridge University in the UK. So really, for as long as I can remember, um, growing up, I was surrounded by very intelligent non-Christians who had often principled reasons for not considering the Christian faith. And so I feel like I've been having the kind of conversations that that I am having today, basically all all my life (laughs) that that I can recall of of trying to 
explain to, to you know very intelligent well-educated people why their objections to christianity when we look more closely actually become reasons to believe rather than reasons not mm-hmm. to believe this episode is brought to you by the truce podcast i'm sure you've been there You're at an event, a dinner, a small group, and someone says something like, If you're a Christian, you have to vote Republican. Huh. That raises an interesting question. How did evangelicals like me get to the place where we just assumed we'd all vote one way? This season on the Truce Podcast, we're diving deep into the complexity of the 1970s and 80s to understand how evangelicals tied themselves to the Republican Party. It's a story that involves murder, corruption, redemption, and our need to be heard. I'll be talking with celebrated historians like Rick Perlstein, Pulitzer Prize winners Francis Fitzgerald and Jesse Isinger, and some of the best guests I've ever had. Truce is the show that uses journalistic tools to look inside the Christian church. We press pause on the culture wars in order to explore how we got here and how we can do better. Subscribe to Truce anywhere you get podcasts or listen at trucepodcast.com. So tell me, because something that you say that your parents gave you, and I read this in an article, and I absolutely love it because I'll be honest, I think it's something that is very much missing in the U.S. This is what it says. I want to read it to people. My parents gave me such a strong sense growing up that Christians should be the most intellectually curious people in town. I was not in any way raised with the anti-intellectualism that can be characteristic of American evangelicalism. That's a mouthful. Um, I also wasn't raised being taught things as gospel truth that weren't necessarily gospel truth. Some folks are taught early on very specific and rigid views. Perhaps, for example, not just that God created the universe, but precisely how he did. Will you expound on that a little bit and why you have found that to be really crucial to your faith when people do object to it? Mm. Yeah, I think I've had the the privilege, as I mentioned, of being in very intellectually rich environments all growing up to where I certainly wasn't, um, I was never sort of scared to dip my toe into the academic world because my whole body was already in it. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And I didn't have the expectation. And I think this is one thing that's been curious to me um, moving from the UK to the US. In the UK, as as an evangelical Christian, you have no expectation you'll be in the majority anywhere. Right. You know know you're in a minority and that feels not not surprising and like an opportunity because, oh, look, there are all these non-believers around you. Great opportunity for evangelism. Mm. uh, that's maybe a slightly that that's obviously the, you know the rosiest picture of of um, Christian witness in the UK, and not to say that that we're perfect at all. But there's there's certainly right. a, a sense of this is not a kind of quote Christian culture around us. Mm-hmm. This is a, a secular culture that needs Jesus. Yeah, I think for many of my friends who were raised in the US, that there's been more of a, of a f- feeling, sort of experientially, whether it's true or not, as a, as another question, a feeling that once upon a time there was a sort of Christian. Do, like a dominant Christian culture that has has declined, and that part of this decline has been driven by 
um, the academic world. Mm-hmm. We, you know, we hear story after story of people who go off to college and learn more about the Bible and discover that they actually don't believe right. that the Bible is the word of God. Or they, you know, they go off to college and they learn more about science and they discover they actually don't believe that, that God created the universe. Or they go off to college and they learn more about, um, you know, human sexuality and they discover actually Christian sexual ethics can't be true anymore. So, so there's there's often this sort of anecdotal support to the idea that the more you learn the more skeptical of christianity you'll become yeah and there's also almost a sort of theological commitment to that that people sometimes have where they say you know i know the gospel is simple and i and i know that it's simple enough for a, a small child or somebody with um um a sort of a learning disability a learning challenges to to understand mm-hmm. and so that must mean that um the christian faith has really no interest in serious sort of rigorous academic intellectual thought mm-hmm. and I actually think that's a I think that's a misunderstanding but I can I kind of too. see where it's I can see where it's come from so I think w- what I experienced was more a sense of okay uh, I, I'm in academic in- environments and I know that God who made the universe and everything and everyone in it um, wrote the most beautiful books books stroke mm. books depending on how you how you want to to talk about it of all time with the most compelling and stunning poetry and and the most powerful stories he's not jesus is not intimidated by the university <laughs> actually right. universities were founded um originally many of them founded to bring glory to god mm. and so um we we end up we can end up with a sort of smaller view of who god is and um and Jesus's uh, compelling nature and power if we are trying to sort of shrink away from the academic world or, or protect our kids from mm. you know reading too many books and even reading books uh, with with very different views um, yes I've I've no desire personally to sort of protect my kids from other ideas because I think actually that if we're truly showing our kids who Jesus is he's only going to shine more brightly in comparison to any other God, sort of religious or secular. Well, and I mean, eventually we are going to engage the secular world. And so for me, I'm like, why not encourage them to read different views and do have different conversations and conversations that are more like, oh, maybe it could be possible that creation looks a little bit differently than every single specific thing, even if that's not necessarily what I believe, because when they get out in the world, they are going to encounter those Mm. different views. And a lot of times we just kind of send them out and they're shell-shocked. So it's not so much university, it's that we've protected them too much at home. Yeah. And it's it's interesting when it comes to questions of of science in particular that you're you're Mm -hmm. raising there, we can sometimes end up with almost a, a a smaller view of God's role yes. in creation that we're, we're teaching our kids. Because if, if we're saying to our children, God is only really um, seen as creator in things that we can point to as, you know, simply miraculous. Um, mm. you know, if, if there's a scientific explanation for something, then that somehow um, means that God isn't in control of it. And, and so the more we understand of science, the less room there is for God. And, and we as Christians can kind of, have this dispiriting experience of seeing more and more of the created order being, you know, quote, explained by science or, or more properly actually described by science. Mm, yeah. And so so our view of God's role shrinks and, and, and shrinks and we become more and more anxious to sort of protect whatever territory we feel like we have left that we can say, oh, look, you know, God did something here. I sort of want to say, wait a minute, <laughs> 
the God of the Bible is the God who created the heavens and the earth. Mm-hmm. And so the fact that we, through science, which was uh, modern science itself, was originally developed by Christians, not as an alternative hypothesis to belief in the creator God, but because they believed in creator God, he was both rational and free. So the, the more we understand of science, it doesn't actually make God smaller. It, it means that we um, we just have a, a, a more accurate sense of how amazing he is. Mm-hmm. And so wherever people end up landing and in, in exactly how they put together, um, you know, modern science with, with the scriptures. And I think there are sort of complexities in, in, in all, all directions. I don't think that's a, that's a problem. We must hold on to the reality that God is the sole creator of, of all people and all things. Yeah. And actually that's the thing that we need to hold on to like we hold on to life itself, not the specifics of how God created, but God's uh, role as creator. Um, and I think we can lose sight of that, ironically, even sometimes when we're trying to de- defend God as creator, we can kind of lose sight of that as if mm-hmm. science is sort of taking away from God. I don't think it is. Yeah. Well, and I appreciate that you say that because that's something that you can see sometimes in the world of apologetics, which, you know, you are an apologist. Um, but I've also heard you speak about how sometimes what is missing in that world is just this heart of humility where we end up almost sometimes arguing with, with each other as much as we're arguing with the atheist that does not uh, believe our views. And so talk about, well, you know, what it's like to engage in that world of apologetics with more of a humble heart um, on these topics like science mm-hmm. and sexuality and, um, you know, some of the other hot button topics of our current times. Mm-hmm. I spent the last year or so writing books about the Gospels, mostly as an excuse to just spend a bunch of time in the Gospels myself. And and one of the things that's striking to me is that the people in the Gospels who can see who Jesus is are the people who come on their knees. The people who come with their, their desperate need mm. for healing, the people who come with their um, sinfulness, their evident sinfulness to all, and are like weeping on Jesus's feet. Those are the people who know who Jesus is. The, the people who stand there on their own righteousness, literally, they can't see Jesus. They have, no, they have no idea who he is. They, they are often opposing him or, or at best sort of mystified by him. Mm-hmm. A- and we know that we enter um, the Christian faith on our knees We're in, in repentance, recognizing our, our own utter inadequacy before the, the holiness of God. Mm. And I think that is not just the best way uh, and uh, the best and only way to become a Christian. I think it's also in many ways uh, the, the best way to, to share the message of the gospel with others. And to me, apologetics is pointless and useless if it is not ordered around share the message of the gospel. Ultimately, we could argue all day long about science or epistemology or sexuality or a- a- any of the things. Um, and we can sort of beat our chests and and pound our our drums um, all day long, and and those I I I don't mean to discredit those conversations. I think they're important, but I think they only really matter um, in as much as they are also helping us to uh, understand the gospel better for ourselves and to share it share it better with others. Mm-hmm. Um, I had a a slightly disconcerting experience a little while ago at a apologetics conference where um, I I'd, I'd given a talk and I talked a lot about Jesus, which you know. Newsflash is something that I like to do. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> and one of the organizers said to me, he said, in all the years of hosting this conference, we've never had anyone talk as much about Jesus as you. 
And I thought, gosh, that really, that, that actually really concerns me. Um, yeah. Because it, it's, again, it's not that um, I don't think apologetics matters and I don't think serious intellectual engagement matters. I really do. Mm-hmm. But serious intellectual engagement as a Christian can only be done on the basis of the person and work of Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. And, and if we're, all we're ultimately doing is, is defending some sort of generic conception of God, um, or even some generic kind of conception of, of sexual ethics, and we're not rooting it all in the gospel of Jesus Christ, we're not ultimately serving our audiences. So yeah. I, think, I think humility, and, and I think we have to fight for humility. Honestly, I, humility doesn't come naturally to me. I mean, um, I, get- I don't think it comes naturally <laughs> to anyone, especially if you're an expert in your field of work, you know, writing, whatever it may be. It's so easy to get lost along the way of why you ever even started defending what you're defending to begin with. Yeah. Yeah. And pride, um, as as C.S. Lewis pointed out, is one of the most pernicious, dangerous sins Mm -hmm. and one of the sins to which we attend the least. (laughs) It's um, it's so true. Uh, I, I'm constantly having to kind of monitor that. Um, in fact, well, I I say that the Lord frequently humbles me. Um, Mm. and I, and I don't like it, but actually I, I feel his love in it because I know that he is knocking pride out of, out from under my feet. Uh, So, yeah, I think, I think we need to recognize our own tendency toward pride and our own desire to defend ourselves. I think often in conversation, we can feel like we can think we're defending Jesus when actually we're defending ourselves. Yeah. Ah. And I think that happens, especially when uh, we're hearing potentially legitimate critiques against our own tribe. Um, So maybe it's you Christians are like this. And all we want to say is, no, that's completely untrue. Mm -hmm. Usually it's partly true. Yeah. (laughs) Um, It may not be completely true. And and I think we want to hold up the the ways in which it's not true, but, but actually we need to be able to recognize and acknowledge when, yeah, we Christians or Christians like me, because, mm-hmm. um, you know, we Christians, you Christians is often, um, you know, any one specific sort of uh, band within the global church. Right. That's right. Um, I, we need to be ready to recognize this, the sins of our own tribe and to not think that this, that recognizing them undermines the gospel because the gospel is not, we're such good people, come and be like us. Amen. The gospel is we're such bad people, Jesus needed to die for us. Um, come and cling to him. Mm-hmm. And he loves us. And that is mm. what um, characterizes ultimately who we are, right? That's why we want people in the kingdom is because he loves them too. Yeah. Yeah. I love I love what Paul says in his first letter to Timothy. Um, interestingly, it's a few verses after one of the times when Paul specifically names same-sex sexual relationships as, as sinful. And he says, this is a trustworthy saying, deserving full acceptance, that Jesus mm. Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Yeah. You know, this is Paul. We don't Paul is often billed as this, um, you know, judgmental, self-righteous guy who goes around telling other people what to do. <laughs> he does tell other people what to do, but not That's on right. the basis of his own righteousness. Actually, he says Jesus saved him to show that even somebody as bad as Paul could be saved. Mm. And and I think we need to have that posture as we go into conversations with non-Christian friends and as we go into conversation, like, you know, discussions and debates around um, questions on which Christians, you know, Bible-believing Christians may legitimately disagree. Mm. I love that you bring that up about Paul because sometimes, I mean, I need the reminder, right? Because sometimes I even say, gosh, he's so bossy. (laughs) He's always telling us what to do, but you're right. I mean, it's more 
from a heart of humility than what is often taught, I think, mm-hmm. uh, by people. And so with that said, and speaking, you know, about sexual ethics, because it is something that you speak to frequently, you know, mm-hmm. how do you encourage Christians really to engage thoughtfully mm-hmm. on the topic, you know, of purity, same-sex attraction, all of the things that seem like in our current culture, we tend to shy away from because we're afraid we're going to mess up mm-hmm. what we say. Mm-hmm. And I mean that more from the stage or we hear just the angry ranting of this mm-hmm. is wrong. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think one of the most important things we need to do is to rediscover for ourselves what Christian marriage is actually about. Mm. And the fact that it, it, in scriptural terms, it is about modeling or being like a tiny little picture of Jesus's love for his church. When we get that central kind of gospel picture in place, then everything else we have to say about sexual ethics makes more sense. I, I sometimes like to say to to non-Christian friends, you know, Christian sexual ethics is actually weirder than you think. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's not just that we have this sort of strange view that that sex only belongs in, in lifelong committed marriage between one man and one woman. We do. Mm. The reason for that view is it's all hanging on a metaphor uh, of Jesus's love for his his people. That's that's why God created um, male and female human sexuality, Christian marriage in the first place is is to to picture that. And when we when we recognize that a number of things um, start to make more sense. Firstly, we recognize that marriage is not an end in itself. It's yeah. not this sort of pinnacle of human experience um, to which every Christian should and must aspire and without which any Christian is living a kind of sub, um, suboptimal life. Actually, Jesus is, relationship with Jesus is the pinnacle of, of human experience. Mm. And um, we can glimpse a, a tiny sort of echo of that in the, in the best possible marriage. We can also experience that in um in singleness, uh, as we await the coming of our true uh, bridegroom and, and and the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, and and it means that um, it helps us to not idolize marriage in a way that, sadly, in in many churches we do, um, to where we sort of we hold up marriage at the expense of singleness, yeah. um, rather than as the scriptures do, hold up marriage. I mean, you know, going back to Paul, he he presents marriage as so precious that it's this picture of Jesus' love for his church. And he says single this is even better. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and so we need to hold hold those both together. And we we also need to recognize um and our, our church is preaching on this right now. We're walking through Matthew's gospel. And we've just come to I think it's the end of, of Matthew 12 when Jesus is preaching and his his mother and brothers come to see him and, and somebody says, Hey, you know, your your mum and your brothers are here. And Jesus mm-hmm. said, Who are my mother and my brothers? And then he stretches out his hands towards his disciples, which is in this instance, not just the 12 apostles, but actually his disciples more broadly. And he says, these are my mother and brother and sisters. Um, Whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my mother and brother and sisters. So we as Christians have uh, have sort of elevated the nuclear family at the expense of the family of the church Mm. and not recognize that in New Testament terms, actually the church, the local church is the primary family unit for Christians. Wow. And again, you know, what does this have to do with sexual ethics? Well, what it has to what it has to say is to say to the uh, exclusively same-sex attracted Christian, actually, you're you're going to have to say no to sexual or romantic fulfillment, is not pronouncing a death sentence on them. Mm-hmm. It's 
welcoming them into being part of part of the family. It's not saying you're you're going to be lonely. Or if it is, if we are saying you're going to be lonely, we're we're messing up on all sorts of fronts when it comes to comes mm. to Christian community ethics. Um, our our communities should be places where both single and married people, um, children, old people, um, people, um, single parents, people who are walking in off the street for the first time, all experience something of the family of God. It's not that churches are built up of little sort of families who happen to come together on a Sunday. It's that the, the church itself is the family. Wow. Um, and when we say, you know, when our c- culture around us says love is love, so um, male, male love and female, female love can be just as good as male, female love in marriage. We want to say yes and no. And right. we want to say we want to say no, because um, sex is a very specific gift from God that is placed in a very specific context by God. And that context is only male, female, female marriage. But actually, if we look at the New Testament, we see a vision of friendship which um is not less than sexual romantic love but if if jesus is is right which i believe he is yes um, it's the love in which there is no greater love mm. you think of what he said to his disciples the the night that he was betrayed he said um this is my commandment that you love one another as i have loved you mm-hmm. greater love has no one than this than that he laid down his life for his friends mm. We're not asking people to turn away from same-sex sexual relationships in order to be lonely. We're asking people to turn away from same-sex sexual relationships to experience the richness of Jesus's love as it's shared between us in the Christian family. And we we should be calling them to better, more beautiful same-sex relationships than the sexual relationship that they might be leaving. And and I I think of um, a a woman I, I spoke to a couple of years ago as I was writing my book, The Secular Creeds, um, I'd heard a little bit of her story and I wanted to interview her directly. I knew her through her, her son-in-law as a pastor um, and she and her husband had divorced um, when her daughter was, I think, maybe a teenager or in her in her 20s. And then she had gone on to um, have a relationship and have a child with another woman. And her daughter and her son-in-law had you know, prayed and prayed and prayed for them and loved and loved and loved them. Mm. And eventually both she and her former partner had become Christians. Wow. And the the most striking thing that she said as she reflected back on this, because they had they had both recognized that they needed to entirely sort of surrender their relationship to the Lord. And, and she was very clear to me. She said, if we had felt like God was calling us to to never see each other again, we were, we were ready to do that. Um, wow. But she said what we both felt was that the Lord actually trans like changed our love for each other. And she said, I feel closer to her as a sister in Christ than I ever did when we were lovers. Wow. Now, now that is um, that, that tells us something about the riches of what Jesus has to offer us. Mm. Because sin is, is always calling us to something less. Um, God is never robbing us of something good, even though it can feel like that. That's right. That, that's exactly what Satan wants us to believe. And that's that can right. be true, whatever our patterns of sexual temptation you know, maybe you're you're married to somebody of the opposite sex and you feel sort of tempted in relationship with with some, you know, another person of the opposite sex and and you're tempted to believe, well, there's something, you know, really good that God's withholding from me because I'm stuck in this marriage. Or maybe you're single and you're thinking, if only I could be married, God is withholding something really, you know, mm-hmm. the the thing that I most need, God is with withholding from me. Or maybe you're you only experience same sex attraction. You're thinking, well, if if only I could have a same sex sexual relationship, that's the thing that I that I most need. Actually, the thing we most need is Jesus. Yeah. 
And one of the ways in which we experience Jesus is through his body on earth, which is his people. Mm. So we can experience in Christian friendship something of the love of, of Jesus for us. And it's beautiful. Mm. Well, and I think that's a call to the body of Christ mm. too, right? To really step into community in your local body of Christ in a way that um, at this point can feel very countercultural because mm-hmm. we're so committed with our quote unquote, you know, nuclear families to mm. running over here to do this with this child. And, you know, I mean, church has definitely taken a bit of a back seat when it comes to community, mm. uh, at least in my world. And so, yeah, that just, that really challenges me to make sure that I'm paying attention to those people who maybe aren't experiencing the body of Christ in the way um, that it was meant to be yeah, experienced. And it's, it's, it's truly a loss for all concerned when we don't experience Christian community that way. Um, it, yeah. It's a loss for our children it's a loss for for married people it's a loss for single people mm-hmm. um our, our family went through something it was it was sort of almost almost comic not not actually comic but almost comic <laughs> so the sunday before last i'm sitting in church and one of our elders is preaching through the that passage in matthew i, I mentioned where jesus says you know who are my mother and my brothers and i love this but you know, i'm excited to to sit through the sermon i get a tap on my shoulder and it's um, a guy who's helping with the children's ministry. And I thought, oh, my four-year-old must have blown up for some reason. And I should go and attend to him. <laughs> but no, it was my husband had been taken ill. And oh, no. he spent most of the last, between that Sunday and the following Sunday, which was this, this past Sunday, he spent um, six out of seven days in hospital. He's oh, seemingly, I think he's, he's fine. Um, but it was like, it was a wild ride for, for seven days there. Mm-hmm. And instead of hearing the second half of the sermon, I experienced its application through that entire week. I saw members of our church family show up for us as family in the most profound ways. Um, wow. It was, you know, a, a doctor friend in our community group who interestingly uh, comes from a Muslim family in Iran and became a Christian and via Turkey has, has come here. And um, he went with, with my husband to urgent care in the first place with another dear friend of mine who in our community group, who three years ago was engaged to her college girlfriend and is now very strongly walking with the Lord. So wow. those two single folks went with Brian to the hospital while I took our kids back home. And then they called me to say, okay, he's like, he's in a bad way. And so we sort of switched. Um, I drove to the hospital. They came back to look after my kids. Um, and I saw through the week, you know, my, my closest Christian friend and her family came over, you know, for, for days on end, like took our kids for sleepovers, fed us, um, yeah. met, met my emotional need. You know, I, I'm very right. much a hugger and my best friend would just like come up and kind of hold me um, periodically because she knew that that was what I needed. We had a single friend in our community group offering to take two days off work to come and look after our children for us. Yeah. Um, we had, you know, my friend who's homeschooling her four kids came over, brought us a meal and then decided to take all my kids back home with her so that I could spend the rest of the day in the hospital. I mean, just the number of ways in which people showed up for us and lived into the fact that we are not just a nuclear family alongside other nuclear families and some random single people we're all a family together. Mm. Um, one of our friends who's married, doesn't have kids yet, texted me one night and she said, what's the plan for our kids tonight? And when she said our kids, she yeah. meant my kids. Right. But she was just sort of signaling the fact that this is these are our kids, That's not right. just yours. 
That's right. Oh, I love that. Well, and it makes me think I'd listened to a sermon recently with Tyler Statton was preaching and he was talking about, um, you know, when Jesus said, who, when you see someone who has needs, you know, and you give them a drink of water, mm. you're giving water to me and so on mm-hmm. and so forth. And so often we can think that is only, you know, the people at the shelter, um, the people mm-hmm. who are experiencing, you know, prostitution, homelessness, all the vulnerable there. But he said, you know, what are you doing when you're parenting even your children? Or in your case, what were your what was your Christian community doing for you? You were a mm-hmm. needy person and yeah. they are meeting your needs. And so that really is applicable on so many levels beyond just going to the nonprofit to volunteer for a day. Yeah. It's incredible. Okay. So tell me this, you're, you, well, you have another book coming out, but you've recently had a book that came out titled Jesus through the eyes of women, which I recommend thoroughly enjoyed. I just want to know, like, what did you hope the reader would take away from that when you decided to write that book? In the gospels themselves, we see extraordinary glimpses of Jesus's relationships with women, both women. He was close to over a period of time and women he was meeting at least in human terms for the first time right the book is specifically about jesus rather than about women um yeah uh, my publisher actually at one point emailed me and said <laughs> we thought we might take change the title to women through the eyes of jesus this is before i'd submitted the manuscript women through the eyes. i said no 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 that's not what this book is this is jesus through the eyes of women i want to look at how do we get a better handle on who Jesus is when we mm. look through the eyes of the first century women who were yeah. his immediate followers? And I think it pulls us back to what we were um, talking about earlier of how you can only really see who Jesus is on your knees mm. or, or flat on your face, not sort of standing up um, and evaluating from a distance. And, and so I wanted people to, to come out of reading that book with a, a clearer picture of who Jesus is and with a, a strong sense of the way in which he validated and welcomed women as full-fledged disciples of, of his. Yeah. Uh, it's one of the things we see, especially in Luke's gospel, that whereas the 12 apostles are <laughs> all Jewish men um, chosen right. to, to sort of re-figure um, the, the 12 tribes of, of Israel, Right. There's actually a larger group of disciples who traveled around with Jesus, mm-hmm. many of whom were women, um, some of whose names we know specifically. And they were in in every sense disciples. Um, right. They weren't just there to cook and clean, though cooking and cleaning is something that all Christians seem to be called to. Like it's, it's sort of <laughs> one, one of the things that I, I noted as I as I worked through the book was it's not that women aren't called to very practical service. They are. That's right. But actually, it's not just women who are called to very practical service in Jesus' kingdom. He says that the if you want to be a leader in his kingdom, you need to be the servant of all. Mm-hmm. So I think we see a lot about who Jesus is and who we are as we um, as we look at his relationships with women in particular. Mm. Something that you do, I opened one of your books. Uh, I think it's called, is it Believing Chris? Is Christmas Believable? Is Christmas un- unbelievable? Oh, is Christmas unbelievable? <laughs> yeah. So my pastor made that exact mistake. So I think, um, you know, you're in good company. Okay. <laughs> I loved it because I started reading it out loud to my kids and they were so excited to hear you write about a story they're passionate about. That's a secular story and that's Harry Potter. And, you know, it really did help them connect 
their current world to their Christian world. And we've talked mm-hmm. about this a little bit already where we can so often keep those two things separate. And that's not really um, going to make Jesus more believable. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so why do you believe that engaging in these stories as well as the Bible actually enrich your belief in Jesus versus leading you astray? Mm. Yeah, it's it's funny. Um, people get so het up about oh. some some people get het up about Harry Potter in a way that they're not het up about the Narnia stories. And I'm thinking, uh-huh. if we're concerned about a story that has magic in it, then we definitely need to write off C.S. Lewis. <laughs> um, and sorry, I could go. Lewis, well, <laughs> I could have a whole podcast series about like, oh, because he was a Christian, you're okay with it. I mean, I don't, I don't get it. <laughs> um. Yeah, I, I think some of the, the best stories of all time have been written by Christians. And the imagination, um, the the ability to communicate in, in beautiful language, the use of metaphors and, um, and powerful stories it is something that um, should feel very much like Christian territory to us mm-hmm. rather than like alien territory. Um, Jane Austen, one of my favorite authors, is one of the greatest Christian intellectuals of all time. And we often miss the fact that she's a Christian. She was a very, very serious Christian. And we have some of her mm-hmm. prayers recorded. We have evidence of her private devotional life, as well as uh, you know, very rigorous church attendance at a time when, sure, everyone was sort of at least nominally a Christian, but right. a large proportion of people were only nominally Christians. Um, she was a very, very serious believer in Jesus. Mm. So um, I think if we look at a, a story like the Harry Potter series, which is is just very compelling as yes. a story, it, it's interesting to me that actually uh, J.K. Rowling, uh, on her own account, drew a lot of inspiration from the scriptures for her That's stories. Right. So some of the things that we're touching on there, when it comes to like, what does real life look like? Um, what does it look like to hold on to this life at the expense of your soul? Uh, which mm-hmm. is something Jesus has a word or two to say <laughs> about in the, in the Gospels um, is, is you know, a theme that's explored. What is the power of sacrificial love? Mm-hmm. We see that from the first in the Harry Potter series. And we see it in uh, the last as well, when Harry is willing to to go and die for his friends and then to have this sort of uh, is essentially resurrection experience, which is not, it, it's not kind of replicating exactly um, what that's we right. see in the Gospels, but it, it's absolutely and J.K. Rowling makes no bones about this. It's it's absolutely drawing from from that well. Mm. Um, I don't think. I mean, certainly my children haven't woken up and said, um, "Oh, Mum, we now want to believe in you know Hogwarts instead of heaven." Um, uh, right. But, <laughs> but what I what I do experience through their eyes, and what I experienced myself actually with the the Lord of the Rings when I was growing up was the feeling of okay there is there is this uh, I'm, I'm experiencing through this book this magical world mm-hmm. that feels so beautiful and amazing and terrifying and, and awesome and the christian faith actually offers me something even better mm-hmm. something that is is real and eternal and beautiful and magical and speaks to all the desire that we have and that our children have for adventure and and for for challenge and and for mystery and for good triumphing over evil we have all that in real life through the message of jesus and and i don't think that means you know what one one response to that is to say yes and so we should only ever read our children the bible because that's where they'll see the real story playing out i think actually we can help our children um you know by giving them access to all sorts of imaginative worlds 
not as a sort of substitute or a rival for the real world that's mm-hmm. described in the scriptures, but instead as kind of um, a place where they can sort of explore that territory knowing that there's knowing that the real thing is even better. Yeah, well, and I think too, so there's a book called Pop Culture Parenting, and it's all about taking stories and movies and actually engaging scripture and mm. God's economy, for lack of better words, mm. through those stories. Mm-hmm. And I've just found that such a honestly beautiful way to engage my children. Mm-hmm. Um, because I, I think about when we're teaching kids how to read, you know, we read a variety of books and we encourage them at times to listen to audiobooks. We read out loud to them. Um, we slowly teach them to read. And, you know, we do that because we want to expose them to all different types of languages, you know, to engage their mm-hmm. imagination, their curiosity. I mean, it's the same thing in our faith, I feel like. We're so scared that our kids are going to go astray. And I'm thinking if we just keep talking to them about the scriptures, in addition to all of these other things that they're encountering Mm. and asking them to make it their own, um, there's nothing to be afraid of. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I just am fascinated with um, the parallels really between Harry Potter and how people can get so worked up over it. Because my Mm. 12-year-old son is just like, it's such a picture of the gospel. Yes, that's not the gospel. (laughs) And I'm like, okay, my 12-year-old gets this. Right, right. (laughs) (laughs) And part of it is, Yes, it's because we've engaged him in that way. Yeah. Like, look at this. Do you see X, Y, and Z, A, B, and C? And so that's what it takes. Well, let's close with this. Outside of God's word, uh, what are some of maybe books, authors, friends that have really shaped you as the follower of Christ that you are today? Mm. Gosh, that's a great question. Yeah, I, I care so much about friendship. I'm actually writing a book about friendship right now. Things that have shaped me well, as I mentioned, funnily enough, the um, the Lord of the Rings series really shaped mm-hmm. me um, as as a young believer and wanting to believe in a world that was even more beautiful than Tolkien's world, um, mm. which is I think the world that the scriptures the scriptures give us. I was thinking just you know very immediately. I was texting with my my best friend Rachel this morning, who wrote a, a brilliant book called um, Born Again This Way: Coming Out, Coming to Faith, and What Comes Next. A, a few mm. years ago. Um, mostly because I forced her to write it. Um, she, she, <laughs> she came to Christ uh, when she was an undergrad at Yale, having been in a lesbian relationship mm. and having identified as an atheist. So she's, you know, wow. come, she's had a very different journey than I have. But two of the many things that I've learned from Rachel that have sort of shaped me and how I am right today are number one, speaking without notes um, when I speak, which is terrifying every time. Oh. But I think actually the right decision, at least at least for me, to prepare hard and know um, what I want to say and then put my notes away and stand up and, and say it wow. and be in the be in the moment with people which she does incredibly well and to she's always pushing me to to read more I have a really? small writing a small writing addiction um, and she <laughs> she reads uh, between 50 and 70 books a year um, partly because she's doing a PhD partly just because she de- like she's one of those she's just she just reads and reads and reads and reads and reads so I'm always going to be the reading weakling compared to her. Um, <laughs> but it, it's it's helpful for me with all the other commitments that I have. You know, I have three children. I have um, books right. to write and talks to give and friends to love and um, yeah. all, all the things. But actually, uh, we are shaped by what we read. 
Absolutely. And we are shaped by the fact that we read. Mm-hmm. So setting aside time, of course, for, for reading the scriptures, but also for reading, you know, novels. And um, I, I read a lot of um, books by non-Christians. In particular, recently, I've been reading books by feminist, secular feminist folk who are critiquing the transgender movement, um, you know, things like that. Sort of just to, yeah. to understand more of what, you know, what different people are saying about different things. Yeah. Continues to be formative for me. I love it. Well, Rebecca, thank you so much. I know you have your book. Um, oh my goodness. You have so many. I can't remember. Je- is it Jesus <laughs> through, wait, Jesus through the, the gospels. What, what is this, the new one coming out? <laughs> the, the new one is called Confronting Jesus. Uh, okay. It's a natty sequel to um, Confronting Christianity, Christianity, which is my first book a few years ago. Yeah. It, it, the, the idea with that book is to look at who Jesus is in the gospels and for it to be a book that you could give to a non-Christian friend who was interested in exploring Jesus, but wasn't quite ready to read the Bible just for themselves. Mm. So that's what, what confronting Jesus is about. I love it. Well, and my friend, one of our previous children's pastors, he's like, will you please ask her when she's going to write 12 questions every child needs to answer? And I was like, I'll throw that in there for her. Do you so. Know, so so here's the secret. Um, originally, 10 questions every teen should ask was going to be called 10 questions every kid should ask. Oh. And I wrote it initially for 10 to 14 year olds. Mm. But uh, my my publisher wisely suggested that we call it 10 questions every teen should ask. Partly because, I mean, honestly, what a 12-year-old needs and what an 18-year-old needs are different and similar. There are many 16 to 18-year-olds who would actually be better off reading Confronting Christianity, just the adult version. Mm -mm. There are others who would be much better off reading 10 questions. And there are kids, you know, my 10-year-old has definitely, you know, talked through all these things with her. And my 12-year-old read it a couple of years ago. Like, yeah, it's... It's maybe, I mean, I wouldn't necessarily read it out to a five-year-old just because right. of the comprehension level, but um, it's my, but it's it's my best applicable. At that. Yes, yes. It's applicable. Well, thank you so much for being here today. I appreciate your time and all the work that you're doing. Thanks, Amber. Take care. I hope you enjoyed today's conversation with Rebecca as much as I did. Remember, her books and two podcasts I mentioned at the beginning are all linked in the show notes at graceenoughpodcast.com slash intellect. Thank you for listening to the Grace Enough Podcast. Tune in next time.